This is Rabbi Josh Uter of the Stanton Street Shul. Thank you for downloading this class podcast. These classes are provided free of charge through the generosity of the Stanton Street Shul community and supporters like you. If you do enjoy them, please consider making a donation to our synagogue's building fund on our website's shop donate page at www.stantonstshul.com. Good morning. It is Sunday, October 27th, 2013. Uh, before we get to the meat of the class, um, have to unfortunately begin with some sad news. I was informed uh, recently by Rabbi Gabriel Bellino of the Sixth Street Community Synagogue, who was informed by one of his congregants of the passing of Mr. Ed Goldsmith. Uh, for those who are regulars to the class or have been listening online, you know Ed is being one of the regulars uh, who came to the Shear, uh, always provided very thoughtful, insightful questions, and it's largely because of him that we have so many questions today. Uh, if I would be Rav Yochan, and he really was the Reish Lakish, who would keep asking questions, and every question that he'd ask you know, allowed me to give 24 answers, and then he'd come back with more, then i get to come back with more. So many Shirim were done out of, or if not specific classes, certainly series, were done at Ed's prompting. So today's class will certainly be dedicated to Ed's memory, uh, who, whether he intended or not, whether or not he wanted to or not, was really responsible for a lot of the Torah that was being taught in this shul. And anyone who hasn't been following, look up some of the old classes, and you will hear a lot of his participation. Today's class is on open orthodoxy, specifically the open orthodoxy of Rabbi Avi Weiss. And to explain what I mean by that, uh, the idiom open orthodoxy was coined by Rabbi Avi Weiss in an article in Judaism, which we cite here. There's a link online too. Um, people yeah, on YCT's website so people can download it and see it directly. There are a lot of people who might call themselves open orthodox or in that camp, including many of his students uh, from Yeshivat Chovah Torah. Uh, you would all, or if not students, other people who, like direct students, I should say, in Yeshivat Chovah Torah, people who would consider themselves part of that world. I'm not relying on those. When I talk about open orthodoxy, I'm focusing almost exclusively on Rabbi Avi Weiss and Rabbi Avi Weiss's own statements, not really those of his students or his followers or even his opponents. Uh, Rabbi Avi Weiss is a, can be a bit of a controversial figure that very few people, I think, take seriously for two major reasons that might be related. The first is by reputation. He's not known for being a lambda, not known for being a learner, or not known for being a tamid chacham, which I find very unfortunate. Having heard him numerous times, my grandparents go to a synagogue often in Riverdale and a whole bunch of other interplays. I can tell the interactions. I can tell you that Rabbi Weiss is a lot more knowledgeable and a lot smarter than just about everyone gives him credit for. He might not, it might not come across because he might act like a Karl Bachian hippie, but there is a great deal of substance under there that's very easy to overlook. The other issue that I think comes up uh, that leads people to make either irresponsible or just flat out wrong assessments is they focus too much on conclusions, by which I mean, what is the conclusion? What is the statement that Rabbi Y says? If you agree with him and you agree with what he's trying to accomplish, oh, how great, how brave, how courageous he is. 
And if you're predisposed to not liking what he says, the guy is a kofir, he's a heretic, and he's not really orthodox. And neither one of which of the responses on the conclusions addresses, addresses the issue of method, meaning you could be right, but for wrong reasons. You could also be wrong for right reasons. But no one actually addresses the arguments on the merits. People get so worked up in the emotional reaction of, do we like what he says or do we dislike what he says? And I think that too is unfortunate because I think there is a system here and I think it's worth unpacking. And it's one of the reasons why I think it's hard to unpack this system is, you know, you're going, we're going to see today that one thing Rabbi Weiss does is he selectively cites sources. And that's something that a whole lot of other people do. The fact that he selectively cites sources, I don't think itself shows much, but you have to understand how. And why does he selectively cite the sources that he does? That, I think, is going to lead us to understanding what the real methodology is underneath open orthodoxy. I hope to demonstrate this, largely from quoting from Rabbi Weiss's own words. Okay? So, let's begin with a section I call the values of open orthodoxy. And we'll see in a bit why I wanted to start with a specific term. Um... You'll notice with the sources I write, like from wherever he happens to be quoting, there's a bibliography at the back if you want the exact citations and want to look this stuff up and you're up on your own. So the first is from a book that he wrote on, uh, called Spiritual Activism. George, start us off. Perhaps the most fundamental principle in Judaism is that every person is created in the image of God. Just as God gives and cares, so too do we. In the spirit of... Imitation day should be a, imi- imi- it, that could be a Matashio day. Sorry, type. I tried copying as best as I could. That was probably an audio so correct. Imitating yeah. God, um, have the natural capacity to be giving and caring. In utilizing this uh, capability, we reflect how God works through people. It is these spiritual underpinnings that are so crucial in carrying out political activism in the moral and ethical realms. The challenge for activists is to ignite the divine spark present in the human spirit and thereby impel people to do good for others. Okay. So the first line that I brought in to introduce, and this is from his book on spiritual activism, is perhaps the most fundamental principle in Judaism is that every person is created in the image of God. Created B'Tselem All familiar with this. We spoke about this in Shul a couple of weeks ago. Now, this is a recurring theme that Rabbi Weiss talks about. And we'll see that pop up in a lot of different places. Now, before we continue, fundamental principle, what do you think this means in terms of this being a fundamental principle? It means that this is a starting point for all everything else that we do. Excellent. That's, a, I think, a very great summary, and it's going to explain how he goes on down the line. Now, before I continue, does anyone know where else Tselem Elohim is mentioned? Or at least in this sort of context. I'm not sure. I thought it was not letting the body sit on mm-hmm. I One place, I know where it comes up, in Noah. Shofech dam ha'adam ba'adam damo yishafech. Right? He who commits murder sheds blood by man. By man his blood shall be spilt. Why? Kibetzelem Elohim asat ha'adam. Because man was created in the image of God. After that, God doesn't really seem to bring it up anymore which is kind of odd if that's your first cause. But that's something to keep in the back of your head as we continue. That for Rabbi Weiss, everything starts at Salam Elohim, and we will explain that 
in greater detail. But that's our prelude. Uh, Shulamis, take the next source. This is, or at least the next paragraph of the next source, there's, uh, I quoted extensively here, from his book on From Women at Prayer. A second era of development concerns the view of Rav Yosef Dov Halevi, uh, a Solovedre, in a recent article introduced by Rabbis Aye and Dov Frimer, they concluded that while the Rav did not criticize these groups from a technical halachic perspective, he had serious public policy concerns about them. So let's stop right there. Um, the discussion here is about women's tefillah groups. And to give a little background about this, um, at the one of the first Adah conferences, Rabbi Saul Berman had gotten up and he said that not only are they following the tradi- they are following the tradition of Rav Soloveitchik, and they're supporting women's tefillah groups. That prompted Rabbi Aaron Lichtenstein to write an editorial in the foreword in one of the most accessible things I've ever seen him write. Unfortunately, I couldn't bring that in. Who said, wait a second, make up your mind. Like, Rosaloveitchik was clearly opposed to them, so you can't say that you're following in his tradition when you are doing something that Rosaloveitchik clearly did not like. But, continue. Uh, the Rav himself always encouraged me and my colleagues in the remnant to Paskin for our respective communities on these matters, where he realized that it is the individual Rav who has the responsibility to decide what is best for his community as he often knows what is best for his constituency. constituency. This was the position of Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, as his grandson, Rabbi Mordechai Tedler, confirmed to me about two years ago. In any event, as Rabbi Aaron Solvedrick had pointed out, public policy can be fluid, and what was a bad policy years ago might now be beneficial or the contrary. The policy must be evaluated in current terms, not those of decades ago. Read the next paragraph. With this in mind, it ought to be noted that some of the Rav's hesitation to accept women's prayer groups was based on the fact that these these groups may be a first step in moving toward egalitarian egalitarian practices of non-Orthodox movements. From that perspective, what the Rav thought to be an issue years ago may not be of any concern to him today. After 20 years of women's prayer groups, it is clear that these groups are not a slippery slope leading to an embrace of non-Orthodox practices. So the argument seems to be, at least as I'm understanding this, is the method of Rav Soloveitchik was you make these judgment calls based on your own time and place. Meaning, you can use someone's method to achieve a contrary conclusion. We've seen this similarly with Rambam. Rambam lays out his method for halacha in the introduction to Mishneh Torah. And if you have a better read of the Gemara, you could contradict Rambam's actual psak halacha. Similarly here, what Rabbi Weiss seems to be arguing is, he might lead to a different policy, or might lead to a different um, approach to Jewish law and practice, while still following the methodological tradition of Rav Soloveitchik. And thus you would not have such a stark inconsistency as one might otherwise you know, have assumed. Okay? Uh, do a few questions? Yeah. Do you have time? Um, yeah, actually, you know what? Let, hold on, let's finish this source and then we'll get to the questions. In the next paragraph, uh, he talks a little, he uh, starts talking about men and women, the relationships. 
he brings up again uh, man being created in God's image. Uh, Dana, take the uh, top paragraph on page two with what makes human. What makes the human being, I'm sorry. What makes the human being superior to the rest of creation is that every person is created in the image of God. The image of God, Salamelokin, goes well beyond the ability to think, speak, and to choose, but reflects the inherent potential of the human being to emulate God, to transcend limitations, and reach nobly to attain godly heights. Telemelokim is not the monopoly of one gender. It emphasizes the inestimable value of human beings, states male and female created he them. This underscores the fundamental principle that male and female are of equal importance, neither one greater than the other. I continue. The same principle is enunciated in the Mishnah. For this reason was Adam created alone, for the sake of peace among people, that one might not say to his fellow, my father was greater than yours. <laughs> we, we descend from one being, we share a common grandparent, we emerge from the same source. In short, we are all equal. Right, so here of our, and then in a footnote, he actually, he cites from Aaron Soloveitchik, saying that the reason why women are obligated to perform fewer mitzvot isn't that they're equal, it's that women are superior. And then he goes on to explain to mean um, that a direct reproach in explaining what Ezer Konegdo is, as one close to Pshat, is to interpret Konegdo as Negdo or the opposite. In effect, God says, it is not good that Adam is alone. I will create help, a Ezer, to stand next to him, Konegdo, to share life experiences with him on a practical and existential level. From the Torah's perspective, men and women have complementary roles as they relate to each other in the larger community. So what Rabbi Weiss is saying here is that on a spiritual level, at the very least, men and women are equal, even though they have different roles, which might say, well, however you want to take that in terms of separate but equal being truly equal or not, Rabbi Weiss, in his shot of what does Ezer Konegdo means, tries to explain that, yes, they are spiritually equal because we're created in the uh, image of God, we just have different roles in society. Uh, and for the first example about questions of equality, uh, throw in the Gemara and Harayot. Mr. Lewin. A man Welcome takes back. precedence over a woman in matters concerning the saving of life and the restoration of lost property. And a woman takes precedence over a man both in respect of clothing and ransom from captivity. When both are exposed to immoral degradation in their captivity, the man's ransom takes precedence over that of a woman. Right. So here's a nice, good rabbinic example of the inequality of men and women. All things being equal, men come first, or at least in terms of saving a life. So here, showing one, you have a selective read, or at least Rabbi Weiss does a selective interpretation of sources, asserting that at the end of the day, men and women are at least spiritually equal, even if they have different roles. All right? So that's entry point one in terms of values. Bunch of questions. Let's go around sequentially, because I know just a lot of people have. Yeah. You may want to leave this, but um, I, I think of the Godolatry when I hear the Rav cited. Um, it sounds like they're giving him the status of Das Torah and that he's equal to Rambam. Uh... Uh, kind of, but we need to explain that a little bit later. You could at least say this. Uh, Rabbi White seems to say this, that he is at least following the tradition of Rosalavechik. Now, the way that he's employing Rosalavechik, so one approach, as you mentioned, could be like Das Torah, and we are going to follow him unwaveringly. Another approach is, this is my teacher. This is what I learned from him, and so I'm applying what I happen to have been taught. And the other important component is, uh, what Rabbi Weiss is doing might not be as innovative as people might think. 
Meaning if one of the allegations that you're going to throw against him is you're coming up with brand new things, he's saying, no, I'm not. I'm following a precedent set by Rav Soloveitchik and the use of Rav Soloveitchik in particular, you know, even if you don't want to use it in the same form of godolatry, which is everyone has to follow him, in the reality, in let's say the Yeshiva University world, Rav Soloveitchik is the Rav. Uh, a, a title that happens to annoy me to no end, uh, my father even more so. What do you mean, the Rav, as opposed to anyone else? He's your Rav. What makes him better? But for that world, in the Yeshiva University world, he's the Rav. Just like at MTJ, the Rav is Rav Moshe Feinstein. So it's an argument for the people of his community. The appeal to the authority of Rav Soloveitchik would be like an MTJ, the appeal to the authority of Rav Moshe Feinstein which doesn't mean that the entire world has to follow him like Das Torah might, but at least to this community, he is, respo- he is referring to an authority whom his community has already supposed is authoritative. You have any questions? Um, you don't have yes. to. I mean, I'm just no, going I around because it's do. easier this way. Um, well, so going back to missionary, it does say that the women takes precedence in some ways and the men in others. So, I mean, leaving aside the specifics of which areas the man takes uh, priority in, isn't that actually consistent with... Rabbi Weiss's idea of men and women being complementary? Well, in terms of to save a life, right? If you can have equal opportunity to save a man's life or a woman's life, you save a man's life, right? Based on no other factor other than gender. That seems to imply that it's not really equal, right? Meaning, I'm not like, there are lots of reasons why you can save one person over someone else. There's likely it's safety, all of those things. That's why I said here, all things being equal, Mm -hmm. men come first, Mm -hmm. which means you don't really have a full equality there. Mm -hmm. Right? Right. You have to have a tiebreaker. Exactly. And if the tiebreaker is gender, that means the genders aren't equal. Dana. Okay. So, in, in the U.S. legal system, we're not really happy when we hear about an activist court. Yep. Because they start with a conclusion and they jury rig the law, so to speak. That's a good pun right there. Thank mm-hmm. you. I like that. Mm-hmm. I'm going to have to steal that. No problem. <laughs> to suit their conclusion, they make their conclusion before they dig into sources. Mm-hmm. So, do that. From that perspective, what the Rav thought to be an issue years ago may not, may not be of concern to him today. True. And it is clear, it is not clear, it may not, it, sure. it, it, which may not, which also means that it may. He's making a conclusion, conclusion without a basis. He's not really sorting a, a, a source other than, well, my Rav told me and I'm inferring from that. Yeah. The, the Rav ordained 10,000 rabbis in his career. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them are still heading up shuls today. And many of them disagree vehemently of yeah. what Rosolovichik actually was or meant. Well, um, so in that regard, at least, I, this will be a theme, but he might not be better than them, but he certainly wouldn't be worse. Do you have any idea how many people speak in the name of Rosolovichik stuff that he never said? Yeah. Remember what we spoke about last night with yeah. Ravosha Feinstein? So that's so, par for the uh, course. Okay, got it. But hang on. So... There are no okay. I, I don't know, but are there are there any hardcore halachic sources that say what must go on in a women's table well, group? Well, we'll get we'll get a little bit there. I mean, the whole book deals with a lot of those detailed questions. Meaning, I only quoted an excerpt from like well, pages one through four. There's a whole book on there, okay, but, but which you're encouraged to read. Okay, but the bottom line question is: Isn't activism in halacha dangerous? 
We'll, that's going to get explained in later sources. Okay. Great question, but we will explain that a little bit later again using Rabbi Weiss's own words. You had any questions so far? Not yet. Okay, George. How does he justify saying that um, Salvechik made his statement uh, only on the local conditions that were then at the time, and now I can also do the same thing in my time. We, that is the meat of the question that we're going to explain over the course of this class. Uh, we're definitely going to answer that. All right. Now, uh, here's another interesting piece of selective citations, again in the value realm, and this discusses, uh, this is from actually the article that he calls Open Orthodoxy, a Modern Orthodox Rabbi's Creed. Uh, we're up to you, Dan. Uh, <clears throat> for the Orthodox rite, non-Jews are by and large accepted, but not embraced. Historically, this attitude may be an outgrowth of millennia of Jewish persecution by non-Jewish governments, or perhaps it emerges, it emerges from the school of thought that insists that the chosenness means that the soul of the Jew is on a higher level than that of the non-Jew. Hence, the non-Jew is of lesser value. By contrast, modern Orthodox teaching is based on the writings of Rav Cook. Okay, now the thing with Rav Cook is about more of interdenominational stuff. Now, before we even turn the page, he seems to take issue with the idea that the Jewish soul is on a higher level than that of a non-Jew, and therefore Jews are superior. In the footnote, people whom he cites as supportive of this position are the Kuzari and the Balatanya. Guess who he doesn't cite who is a proponent of this idea? The aforementioned Rabbi Cook, on whom he says modern Orthodox teaching is based. What does Rav Cook say? This is in Orot Yisrael 510, uh, and there's a link here to an article where someone tries, uh, from the Hartman Institute, where someone tries explaining Rav Cook's positions. But here's what he writes in Orot Yisrael 510. The difference between the Israelite neshama, uh, supernal soul, its essence, internal longings, aspirations, character, and position, and the neshama of all the, all the nations in their various grades is greater and deeper than the difference between the nefesh, meaning the lower biological part of the soul, of man and the nefesh of animals. For between the latter, there is only a quantitative difference, while between the former, there exists a qualitative essential difference. So even in the perspective of values, you have Rabbi Weiss that says in one context, we follow the tradition of Rav Cook. That was a lot. My contrast, modern Orthodox teaching is based on the writings of Rav Cook, except, of course, for this one, right? This one we don't like. So that one we're going to, I guess, either pretend it doesn't exist or interpret to mean something kind of the opposite. So here you have an example, again, of selectively citing sources or at the very least, ignoring that which contradicts what you say. Is it an objection? Absolutely. But again, no more of an objection that can't be levied against a whole lot of other people. The question is, we need to figure out why. It's important in the Open Orthodoxy article that he writes. Um, he doesn't really refer to Open Orthodoxy. He refers to Modern Orthodoxy. And he uses this article to contrast Modern Orthodoxy with uh, Conservative Judaism, and with Haredim on the right, right? Conservative on the left, Haredim on the right. And this was an example to show that, trying to show that modern orthodoxy is a lot more open to different ideas and different people than those of the left on the right. That is his ultimate mission, his point, in terms of writing this particular article, which, again, you are all encouraged to read this in all the source, primary sources. 
quickly. Is there anything in Rav Cook's teaching that actually supports Rav Weiss's reading of Rav Cook? There are other things that talk about universalism, mm-hmm. right? And uh, if you read the Hartman article, he actually tries. Uh, the author tries to do some reconciliation between them. But again, that gets to a sense of here's what you want Rav Cook to actually say. How do you reconcile different conflicting ideas? Mm-hmm. If you want him to be a universalist, he's a universalist. If you want him to be a particularist, he's a particularist. Right? Not unlike how people reinterpret Rosolovitchik every which way. Right? And I'm sure, you know, if you show this to Rabbi Weiss, he'll have some answer about what Rav Cook really meant behind it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Whatever. I'm just quoting what people said. I will uh-huh. leave the interpretations up to other people. Uh-huh. George. Go back. Uh, no. write, write it down and we'll get it towards the end. Right? Because now we've got, now we've got, we're going to deal with the, this set up, I think, a nice little introduction to his thought in terms of the values. That Rabbi Weiss seems to be motivated by Certain a priori values, uh, in this case of Tselem Elohim, man is created in the image of God, of being open and being accepting of other people, independent of what all the texts actually have to say. All right? Now, that's in terms of the value base of open orthodoxy. Now, we're going to discuss the halachic approach. All right? So all of uh, the next few paragraphs are going to be from his article, Open Orthodoxy, a Modern Orthodox Rabbi's Creed. George? The system, God ethics, God ethics, differs from the ethical humanism, which is solely based on what the human beings consider to be proper conduct. Human thinking tends to be relative. What is unethical to one person is ethical to another. If, however, the law at its foundation comes from God, it becomes inviolate. No human being can declare can declare it null and void. Heterogeneous heteronomous law. Uh, heteronomous law uh, assures that one does not succumb to one's subjective notions. Therefore, the law must be kept even when its ethical underpinnings are not understood. All right. Okay with this statement so far. Sounds all nice and from. Right? Subjective values don't take precedence over normative law. Seems to be straightforward. No real issues there. Continue. Thus, halacha has a degree of flexibility. To explain where he got to that jump there, that was, I should put in some ellipses here. The flexibility comes in when he describes rabbinic laws. Right? You have, you know, for things that are misenai, the God-given stuff, you've got... You know, you have to do what God says. But as we all know and you have seen, you have a lot of disputes in the rabbinic, era, uh, rabbinic period. So he says that there is a degree of um, flexibility. Well, bothered by the system that is external to human God, <clears throat> the God-given law, Torah Sinai, uh, to which Jews are subservient, it also includes laws derived by the rabbis concerning, that, uh, concerning which there may be more than one view. It follows, therefore, that halacha is a giving a living source structure, that, a living structure that operates within the absolute guidelines, yet one which is broad enough to allow significant latitude for the posek uh, to take into account the take into account the individual and his or her circumstances. Simply put, within airtight parameters, halacha is flexible. Yeah. Within airtight parameters, halachics is flexible. Perhaps, but let, let's put it in a certain context. You know, we speak of the arba amot of halacha. We speak of the four cubits of halacha. That is allows for a range of opinions. 
in certain areas. Meaning, if you follow certain, it seems to be arguing that if you follow certain objective principles, you can have a range of valid conclusions. Right? That's right. So far, again, airtight parameters halach is flexible. There are times when you could be lenient, times that you can be strict, but there have to be definitive laws or boundaries when you can and can't do it. Here's where we get really fun. Take the next paragraph. In the same framework, all those who hold to orthodoxy contend that new halacha, which emerges constantly from the wellsprings of the halachic process, must always be based on the highest caliber of religio-legal authority. Uh, there must be an exceptional halachic personality who affirms the new rulings on the grounds of sound halachic reasoning. Stop here. What is the highest caliber of religio-legal authority? An exceptional halachic personality. Who determines that? Ah, that gets back to the Gadolatry questions. Who is the real Gadol? Who is the great leader? Who is this exceptional halachic personality? And who gets to make those determinations? And what is new halacha? Well, that, that's a little bit easier. Because, you know, if you just say, well, this has never been... Oh, this seems new, right? But who is his ultimate appeal to authority? Mm-hmm. It's not really the texts. It's really the Gadol. How close is that to Nevuah? Oh, well, we, we discussed that in the, da, in the Das Torah one, where the Gadol, the great leader, has uh, the ability to intuit some special spiritual insight to know what the text really means. All right? So this puts on, an, uh, answering Dana, this is your nice little check about activism. Isn't it dangerous? Well, sure, but that's why you need an exceptional halachic personality to affirm the legitimacy of whatever new innovation you're trying to do. Shalamis, take the next paragraph. And the belief in Torah and Sinai is, for all Orthodox Jews, the foundation of faith at the core of the halakhic process. Conservative Judaism does not subscribe to this teaching. Moreover, in the area of rabbinic law, we Orthodox, modern and right alike, contend that legal authority is cumulative and that a contemporary pulsate can only issue judgments based on a full history of the Jewish legal precedent. 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 And contrast the implicit argument of the conservative movement is that uh, precedent provides the illustrations of possible positions rather than binding law. Meaning in the uh, term that's often used, a vote but not a veto. Right? It has a say, but this isn't actually we, how the conservative would actually practice. Continue. Conservatism therefore remains free to select whichever position within the prior legal history appeals to it. Likewise, we adhere and turn to the wisdom of the most distinguished religious legal authorities in making halakhic determinations. Right, so we, the Orthodox, rely on the religious legal authorities, which again he defined as exceptional halakhic personalities in making the determinations, but the conservatives. Just look for any sort of precedent and pick and choose the conclusions that match what they want to say. And he gives a specific example here. Uh, Truth be told, when conservative movement faced some of its more controversial new halachot, such as the ordination of women, it turned away from its own Talmudic experts in halacha who had almost universally rejected the reasoning upon which this new practice was to be based and who have since virtually all left the faculty of the Jewish Theological Seminary. So here he seems to be arguing a matter of consensus as well, meaning if you're great, according to his critique of conservative Judaism now, 
in this paragraph, I mean, when they affirmed women rabbis, they did so against the psak, the halachic decision of their own religious leaders of conservative Judaism. And that's bad. Unlike Orthodox, where we follow the exceptional religious halachic personality. Now, does Rabbi Weiss himself actually do that? Well, not necessarily. Uh, he can, well, we'll see that in a bit. But he continues later on with, uh, sorry, in the next paragraph on Dat Torah, even in purely halachic areas. So he explains that there's a difference with Das Torah, uh, which we saw you might recall from that class, which doesn't only refer to halachic matters, but also to secular matters. So he writes, even in purely... Halachic areas, we part company with the understanding of Dat Torah. For the Orthodox rite, Dat Torah means that decisions made by rabbi, by the rabbis, close off all discussion. In modern Orthodoxy, on the other hand, it sets the foundation from which discussion ensues. Dr. Lawrence Kaplan, whom you remember we cited in that class, writes, while Psak always leaves room for more discussion, for further analysis, and for responsible criticism, the whole purpose of Dat Torah is to close off and suppress discussion. It enables one person or one group to impose ex cathedra, a personal particular viewpoint on all persons and groups, and no questions asked. In sum, Rabbi Weiss continues, for we modern Orthodox, if Dat Torah means to revere the wisdom of our great rabbinic authorities, like Rabbi Yosef Dov Soloveitchik of Blessed Memory, we believe in it. If, however, it means we follow blindly the great rabbinic authorities in non-halachic areas or to close off discussion in purely halachic areas, we disagree. We respect Rav Soloveitchik's Torah precisely because he was a person of enormous human wisdom and insight. He understood that Torah was not to be imposed, that it was to be persuasive rather than authoritarian. So even within the context of following this exceptional halachic personality, while you follow them, it doesn't mean that you follow blindly. It does not mean, or at least according to his explanation of Rav Soloveitchik, whom, again, we're going to assume he got from Rav Soloveitchik himself, you don't do exactly what he says simply because he said so, but it's fluid within airtight parameters. You can still use the method to argue. Rav Soloveitchik, to my knowledge, never said, like Rav Moshe never said, I am the posik, you have to listen to me. People were free to disagree. We saw that in last week's Eruv class, where Rav Moshe Feinstein says, there are other people who are Magia Lahora'ah, you know, who have reached this level, who are poskim, who have a different opinion, and that's okay. Right? There is some room for disagreement, but we still don't have anything concrete yet as to how that works. Now we'll go around for questions. Again, we'll go around the room. We'll start with George this time, because you have a bunch. I want to and, go back to the question about okay. uh, saving a woman or a man. Uh, there's a principle that if you save someone's life, it's like saving the whole world. Yep. If you save a woman, you save future generations as opposed to a man, which is only that generation. Uh, so, from what I've been told, men can also procreate. I just call it a hunch. Yeah, but they can't deliver they don't, that's cute, they don't deliver, that's nice. You, you kind of need both, though. All right, what else you got? All right, so we'll get back to you. Shalamis, any questions? Not yet, no. Dana. Okay, so you've sort of said it already. I said nothing. I quoted Rabbi Weiss. Okay. That's the important thing here. Everything that I'm signing in the name of Rabbi Weiss are things that he himself has written in print. We are just reading through it carefully and trying to 
I guess, uh, explain what exactly is going on here. Mm -hmm. All right? So it's not me. Okay. Well, he plays a nice little game. Where? He starts with the objective saying uh, that the halacha operates within absolute guidelines. Mm -hmm. And then he says... Uh, halacha is flexible. Yes. Flexible is a dangerous word because... Well, the flexibility itself isn't the problem. Like I mentioned, the Arba Amot of Halacha, unless you define what those airtight parameters are, then you have a degree of what's dangerous. Right. All right? But, but still, it's, it's in the hands of the user. And, and so, yeah. Mm, but it's not. It's only in the hands of the exceptional halachic personality. But again, we have... It begs the question... Now, you're right. It does beg the question of all the things that we described of who gets to determine that. But that is a very crucial idiom. Because he's not talking about individuality here. And we'll see in a bit where he kind of rejects that. It's not Isha Yasharpe in Navya Asel. We'll actually talk about that next week when we get to Hartman. Right? It's very different. All right? Okay. So question number two... He uses the phrase new halacha for the orthodox and the conservative. Mm-hmm. And do the orthodox believe in new halacha or a new application of existing halacha? Um, when you come up with new gezerot or takanot, those are certainly new things. Well, When you come up with new isurim that never existed before... Yeah, that's a new halacha right yeah, there. Yeah, but if you're basing it on something that exists, you no longer, I mean, and again, not necessarily within modern orthodoxy, but orthodoxy in general. So now, instead of skirts two inches below the knee, we have to go to the ankle. Why? Uh, 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 standards of sneeze okay. have changed, but we're still going on the basis of sneeze, something yep. that's... So, so that's a new application of something existing. So he might be. So I think here it would be in more of the sense of a new ap- application of existing law, because whenever you give a halachic argument, you're still quoting people, yeah. right? His complaint against conservative isn't that they don't quote people; it's that they just dig up whatever source happens to agree with them. And he's not doing the same thing. That we'll get there. Okay, and one other thing. So specifically with Rosalovichik. It seems like a lot of the people, it seems like a lot of the people who consulted him specifically is not just because he's the Rav, but because he had a great deal of life experience and could apply his knowledge and real, real world experience that a lot of the others may not have had to, to areas of Jewish life. Yeah. So, his experience is going to be different than other people's experience. Yeah. That so, doesn't mean it's better than other people's experience. Okay, but... Right? Or, as he put it, or at least as Rabbi Weiss quotes him, yeah. what might have been appropriate for Boston when Rabbi Weiss was the Rav might not be appropriate for me today in the Stanton Street Shul. Okay. And, so, and the so, two things... Are, and, yeah. Okay, so one last thing on this basis. When you go to someone of, of Rav Soloveitchik's stature, you're not going to go there to challenge him or have him, you know, have him show, show his work, show his sources. Actually, you kind of did. They're from s- people whom I've heard who studied under him. Yeah. The way that people approach him with questions was, you came to him with a, you didn't just ask him as Mutarasi, you came with your research. And you said, here's my situation, here are my sources, here's my conclusion, is this correct? And if he thought you were right, he'd say, yeah, that works. Yeah, but- and he could come out saying it works for two mutually contradictory 
answers. Mm-hmm. So it does happen. It's one of the reasons why people come out of it. Actually, I had a story from one of my uncles uh, who reported to me where Soloveitchik told him that he could take a he could be by take a pulpit he could become the rub of a shul that did not have a mechitza. I shocking compared to what he said in mechitza. So I mentioned that to one particular rosh yeshiva at Yeshiva University. He said, "Can't be. He must have misunderstood. What Rosaloveitchik must have said was, you can take the mechitza, or you can take the non mechitza shul only if you plan on putting in a mechitza later." I double check with my uncle. He said, "No, he didn't say that." So I've got what my uncle reports to me firsthand versus what someone else says. Here's what Rosaloveitchik must have said. I have no freaking clue what actually happened because I wasn't there. But in that discussion, I'd sooner trust my uncle on this than, you know, someone who says, here's what he must have thought. What are you going to do? Any questions? Next, Mike, going down the line. So the main interesting thing of his critique of conservative Judaism is he talks about legal authority being cumulative. Yep. And post-issuing judgments only in a full history of precedent. So what does that mean? Uh, Yeah, it's a good question there. Uh, Not really fleshed out so much. Mm -hmm. Because even when you go through the, you know, uh, mm-hmm. you know the, the selective rabbinic authorities who are also doing the same thing. We might see a little bit more of that in the next source. Any questions at this point? Two, if you want them. I'll go for it and we'll see if we handle them later. Okay. Uh, so I, I really don't understand the difference between saying uh, the Rav or, or the Gadol has ultimate authority, and then saying, but you can argue with him. We'll explain that. All right. And the second is when he criticizes selective quoting of the conservatives. Yeah. I thought that the reason the Talmud included minority opinions that it rejected yeah. was that maybe one day it would make sense to accept them. Mm. So Wouldn't that argument itself be a selective citation? Which, you, even without that, mm-hmm. you saw earlier that Rabbi Weiss does seem to ignore statements that, you know, don't say what he wants. One is saying Judaism believes in equality, yet we have that mission in Harayot, saying that we follow the teachings of Rav Kook, except for the one that we don't like, that we're going to pretend doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. Right? So it's not that Rabbi Weiss is innocent of that either. Here's where, okay, now, we set up the status so far in open orthodoxy. Now let's turn to an editorial that he wrote uh, this past year, uh, Miss, oh, I should put in the date in the source sheet, Masora Making and Making Room, A Journey to Women's Spiritual Leadership. Okay, now who are we up to reading-wise? Uh, Dana, were you reading last or was that Shalamas? Dana, start us off. Uh, Masora, tradition, is commonly associated with the giving and transmission of Torah. For some, it is a meta-halachic concept, that is, Regardless of what the halacha says, there is a past tradition that must be taken into account. Now, of course, past tradition, consideration of time-honored practices, is of tremendous import. As the Torah states, ask your father and he should tell you, your grandfather, and he shall say, and he shall say to you. Or as Proverbs writes, listen, my child, to the discipline of your father and do not forsake the instruction of your mother. Right, remember the class that we gave on Mesorah. Mm-hmm. That's only one half of the equation. One is seriously mistaken to think that Masorah only means that everything we do is cemented in the past. The Talmud makes this point when, in rec- when, it, when, ah, when it records that unlike his predecessors, Rebbe, a Talmud scholar, did not obligate that tithes be taken on fruit and vegetables grown in Beit She'an. Beit She'an. Beit She'an. Maintaining that for tithing, Beit She'an was outside of Israel. 
His brothers were incensed. A place where your ancestors acted prohibitively, you'll act permissively. Rabbi responded, Makam. Thank you. My ancestors, my ancestors have left room for me in which to distinguish myself. In other words, it's been left over for the next generation. No generation can do all the work that's necessary. It is not only the right, but the obligation of each generation, lehit gaderbo, to distinguish itself. Not to distinguish itself as an, in, in an arrogant sense, but in the sense of continuing the work of not being frozen in the past and thus taking halakha to even greater heights. Interestingly, Rebbe used the word lehit gader from gader, fence. Although permitting the produce without tithing, Rebbe declares, I have done so with, within proper parameters. It follows then that Misorah is not totally, solely rooted in the past. Rather, our Misorah is that within proper parameters, we ought to innovate, we ought to innovate to address the issues of our time and continue the work. This innovation is not sprang from Misorah, it is demanded by it. This involves two steps. Right, so hold off here. So he's saying, effectively, that change, or at least certain innovations, are actually part of the tradition, and an essential part. Now I'm going to take this next paragraph, because this has to be read very carefully. The first step is to assess the law, and evaluate whether it is in conflict with other central principles of Torah. Consider, for example, the Torah's position on polygamy, slavery, or yafat tawar, the laws of a female war captive. These laws seem in conflict with other values of Torah, values like Tselem Elohim, which we've seen before, every human being created in the image of God, or Kavod HaBriot, human dignity, or Kedoshim Tihiyu, and you shall be holy. If conflict exists, a second step, a systematic means by which halacha can evolve. The Torah makes this very point when it declares in any generation, when, it challenge, when challenging issues arise, one is to go to the judge of his or her generation. Misor includes a sophisticated network of rabbinic law, some interpretive and some legislative. After extensive in-depth analysis of the law, new applications may be possible. Dana, that addresses your point. Your new application of existing law. All right? So the here, Rabbi Weiss addresses that. There's something much bigger here, which is the thing that I bolded to evaluate whether a law is in conflict with other central principles of the Torah. I cannot stress how important this line is in Rabbi Weiss's thought. As uh, George, you summed it up like beautifully at the beginning. Tselem Elohim is the source from which everything starts. That right there is a huge assumption. And it's there, I think, Dana, is where you have the dangerous assumption. Because the same God who included Selim Elohim also permitted polygamy, also included slavery, also included the Eshet Yafat Toar, the war captive. The problem of Selim Elohim, therefore, isn't what is, as, I mean, we're going to operate under a fairly traditional approach that the entire Torah is from God. So who is to say that, you know, if God's coming up with all of that, then clearly God didn't think Eshet Yafat Toar, the war captive, who, by the way, for those who aren't familiar with that law, means a soldier can rape a woman and take her home to be his wife, which today is, I believe, a war crime under the Geneva Convention, mm-hmm. right? So God didn't have a problem with that being Selim Elohim, assuming you think it's all of divine authorship. What seems to be the issue? Not even Selim Elohim, 
Tzalem Elohim is understood by Rabbi Weiss. Here's another example. He mentioned Kedoshim Tihiyu. You shall be holy. What does it mean to be holy? You could just as easily take that as in ethic, right, in the way that Rashi does. Anyone remember how Rashi explains Kedoshim Tihiyu? Separate. Separate from Heve Prushim Min Arayot. Specifically separate from illicit sexual activity. Now, who's to say what Kedoshim Tihiyu actually means? According to Ramban, it's Naval Beshuta Torah. You shouldn't be, you know, an evil person within the confines of the Torah. But let's say you take it as Rashi does. What that means is, I am now justified in being crazy super strict in all of the laws of modesty, or what I consider modesty, require all women to wear burqas, because they have to. That's the ethic of Kedoshim Tiyu as explained by Rashi. Is that what God actually meant by it? Not even a little, because that's not what the Torah says. So the problem with these ethics are, the assumption that you have a law that contradicts an ethic, but where did that ethic come from? Is that what the law actually says, or is that your interpretation of what the law ought to be? That is where I think you have the real danger here, because even the, ver- even the assumption that Eshet Yifat Torah contradicts Tzalem Elohim carries with it a whole lot of assumptions that not only do you consider Tzalem Elohim to be the super law over which anything go, or under which all other laws must be subjected and evaluated, but it's specifically Tzalem Elohim as you personally happen to understand it. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to go out on a limb here. These laws seem in conflict with other values of Torah. Yeah. That's his assessment. That's exactly what I'm saying. Right, right, right. Okay. As opposed to these laws are in conflict with other values of Torah, and the conservative movement is probably more likely to say that they are rather than they seem to be. And once something seems to be... Wouldn't you want to go about resolving the conflict rather than saying, eh, it didn't mean that. Well, that's what he said. It's a systematic means by which halacha can evolve. Meaning, when you have a conflict, you can say, well, something has to give. So either you change your interpretation of the ethical statement to meet the law, or you change the law to meet your conception of the, intellect, of the ethical statement. Right? Again. All right. Now, let's, get, let's go to the next source and we'll because we're running a little bit late, and we'll try to address all the questions towards the end. Remember what we said earlier about, you know, the danger about who can do what? There seems to be, I mean, I put this somewhat tongue-in-cheek, the limits of open Orthodox theology. There was a time when they actually did, in fact, come up and say no. Mike, uh, where are we up to? I think you, Mike. Do you take, uh, this is an open letter that was dated October 19, 2008, that you can find on the Hirhurim website. Rabbi Darren Kleinberg was ordained as a rabbi by Yeshivat Hovei Torah, Rabbi Artak School School, in June 2004. Since then, he has engaged in many positive endeavors as a rabbi on behalf of the Jewish people. However, recently, Rabbi Kleinberg has participated on a non-halahic bait din for conversion. This violates the standards and principles of Yeshivat Hovei Torah and YCT categorically rejects this action. Rabbi Kleinberg's statements and actions should not be assumed to be representative of YCT's positions and principles. Right. Now, this is a pretty strong statement for any rabbinical school to make. There are two parts here that need to be uh, one more significant than the other. The less significant is to say, basically, the actions of one particular varmusmachim 
the fact that he poskined or he did something in a certain way doesn't mean that this is what the institution believes. And I'm sure YU would love to be able to do that because a lot of YU musmachim get up and say things that YU probably wouldn't want attached to them. This shirim, this year, this in fact year, anything I do here actually might come under that category. But the other thing is phenomenal. Right? Kleinberg has participated on a non-halachic baitin for conversion. Well, what made it non-halachic? Yeah. Right? Now, I mean, I happen to know like what might go behind. The details are irrelevant in terms of what made it non-halachic. But according to Rabbi Weiss's own approach, maybe Rabbi Kleinberg acted in what he thought was B'Tselem Elohim. Maybe he thought he was acting in the open approach based on what he thought the ethical conclusion of the halacha ought to have been. And yet Rabbi Weiss and Rabbi Linzer sign off and say, nope, that was non-halachic. In other words, you, Rabbi Kleinberg, were not in a position to make that call. Right? It, it's not a big enough goggle. Effectively, yes. Now, here's where it gets really fun. And for the first time since I've been here, you should appreciate this next section, George. Um, how does orthodox, open orthodoxy, as we've seen by Rabbi Weiss, fit into the tradition of Rabbi Soloveitchik? And what I do, what I rarely, I'm doing now what I rarely do, which is actually quote Rav Soloveitchik. And the reason why I rarely do this is because people interpret him in any which way. Again, these are things that I have quoted from him directly. The first is a derasha that you can find online called The Common Sense Rebellion Against Torah Authority, in which he makes an analogy to Korach. Uh, And it's important to use this analogy because with Ada, that was an analogy that people actually threw at Avi Weiss and Saul Bernal, like, hey, you guys are like Korach. Dan, start us off here. Similarly, the oral law has its own epistemological approach, which can be understood only by a London who has mastered its methodology and its abundant material. Just as mathematics is more than a group of equations and physics is more than a collection of natural laws, so too the halacha is more than a compilation of religious laws. It has its own logos and method of thinking and is an autonomous, self-integrated system. The halacha need not make common sense any more than mathematics and scientific conceptualized systems need to accommodate themselves to common sense. When people talk of a meaningful halacha, of unfreezing the halacha, or of an empirical halacha, they are basically proposing Korach's approach. Lacking a knowledge of halachic methodology, which can only be achieved through extensive study, they instead apply common sense reasoning, which is replete with platitudes and cliches. As in Aristotelian physics, they judge phenomena solely from surface appearances and note only the subjective sensations of worshippers. This dot approach is not tolerated in science, and it should not receive serious credence in halacha. Yeah, continue. Such judgments are pseudo-statements lacking sophistication about depth relationships and meanings. The approach of Moses prevailed. The survivors of the catastrophe which befell Korah's group later conceded that, in the words of our sages, Moses is truth and his interpretation of Torah is truth, and we are liars. This judgment is still valid. In our day, we are witnessing a resurgence of strength among those religious groups that are committed to the oral law as a chokhmah and who therefore, who therefore recognize Torah scholars, Gedolei Yisrael, as the legitimate teachers of Israel. Common sense can only spread confusion and havoc when applied to the halacha 
as it does with all specialized disciplines. Right. So here, Solveig is arguing, oh, you think you've got logic? No. You need to follow some halachic system, which doesn't really explain how that is, but an appeal to Gedola Yisrael. Now, here is where everything gets tied together. <laughs> this is Rav Soloveitchik from Halachic Man, the very beginning of part two. Watch how this works. Halachic Man is a man who longs to create, to bring into being something new, something original. The study of Torah, by definition, means gleaning new creative insights from the Torah, Hidushe Torah. The Holy One, blessed be He, rejoices in the dialectics of Torah, a popular folk saying. Read not here dialectics, pilpul, but creative interpretation, chidush. This notion of chidush, of creative interpretation, is not limited solely to the theoretical domain, but extends as well into the practical domain, into the real world. The most fervent desire of halachic man is to behold the replenishment of the deficiency in creation when the real world will conform to the ideal world and the most exalted and glorious of creations, the ideal halacha, will be awakened in its midst. The dream of creation is the central idea in the halachic consciousness. The idea of the importance of man as a partner in the Almighty in the act of creation. Man is a creator of worlds. The longing for creation and the renewal of the cosmos is embodied in all of Judaism's goals. And if at times we raise the questions of the ultimate aim of Judaism, the telos of the halacha in all its multifold aspects and manifestations, we must not disregard the fact that this wondrous spectacle of creation of worlds is the Jewish people's eschatological vision, the realization of all its hopes. In plain English, this answers all of our questions. Why? What Rabbi Weiss does is follow this description of the halachic man as described by Rabbi Soloveitchik. How? By focusing on ethics and focusing on values. And here, let me stress, this doesn't apply just to Rabbi Weiss. This applies to any rabbi who refers or to any decision based on Jewish values, is referring and relying on what he perceives to be the teleology. Anyone familiar with that term, teleology? Ultimate means the ultimate end. What is the purpose of the Torah? What is the purpose of all creation? Such that halacha is trying to achieve. You might put it on the category of ta'ameh hamitzot. The reason of this commandment is ultimately to achieve a certain goal. But who knows what that particular goal is? According to Rabbi Weiss, it's the exceptional halachic personality, or the gadol. When he relies on Salam Elohim, right, what he's doing is saying that this is the teleology of all halakha. This is what everything else, everything else must be under, such that when he goes through and selectively cites sources, even against everyone else on, say, women's rabbis, which would seem to contradict what he wrote in the Open Orthodoxy article, or even when he seems to contradict the specific rulings of Rav Soloveitchik, he's acting in that same method that he inherited from him, which is, intuit what God really wants you to do, the ethics behind it, the teleology, the end result of how God wants the world to be, mm-hmm. and then paskin accordingly. In other words, this is what Avi Weiss's method is the specific, nuanced, das Torah approach of Rav Soloveitchik. And if anything, 
The flaw of open orthodoxy isn't that it isn't orthodox, it's that it's not very open. Because who has the right to intuit what God actually meant, what ought to be the end result? Mine could be different than his. Rabbi Kleinberg could have had a different result than Rabbi Weiss. Oh, no, no, that's not acceptable. We have to make a public statement that this wasn't halachic. Because Rabbi Weiss has the right to make that decision because in his mind, and I truly believe he's very sincere in what he believes, this is what God wants the world to turn into. And Halach is going to be under that. That is how I see he operates. I think that explains the, the um, uh, inconsistencies. But it also explains very well how Rav Soloveitchik operates or where he got this from Rav Soloveitchik. What this means at the end of the day is that open orthodoxy is no better and no worse then all other forms of gadolatry or das Torah are just following the sacred intuition of the Rebbe. By no better, I mean you can't say that his halachic approach is somehow superior because he picks and chooses just as much as anyone else does. And if you read his defense of women's um, prayer groups, I mean, you'll find not even does he quote sources primary, but as he writes, it, when he um uh, complains about conservatism, that conservatism rejected their own authorities. Well, he, you know, by doing it, is rejecting all the authorities of Orthodox Judaism, right? So he will play by different rules as it suits, even if you happen to, th- uh, but it also means he's no worse. So anyone who says that he plays fast and loose with the halacha, or anyone who says, well, you know, he's just doing things as he sees fit, that may be true. But how would that distinguish him from anybody on the right who issues their crazy piske halacha? Again, if you focus on the conclusions, he will seem like he's a conservative. But he acts more like... But the conservative movement, you know, they at least take votes on things, right? They've got their committee on Jewish law and standards, right? They go through some sort of process. Everyone doesn't have a process. He's relying on his own intuition on his own understanding of what he thinks Tzalem Elohim ought to be, even as it contradicts other words of God as he understands it, right? That's not conservative Judaism. That's everyone else on the right. That is what open orthodoxy at the end of the day is, and as a halachic method, even though in practical terms might share more in common with conservative Judaism in terms of the conclusions, in terms of the method, how you get there, has a lot more in common with the people over at Aguda, people down in Lakewood, the, anyone else that we saw in the Das Torah class of Rabbi Dessler, of people who think that, they, or Ramban even, of God speaking through him. Whether or not he actually uses that appeal, it is implicit in the argument when they say, God says, tell him Elohim, therefore, this is what God wants us to do, when God's very explicit about what God wants you to do, what God thinks is moral or immoral. All right? Now, Questions, arguments, or rebuttals. We'll go around the room again. Everyone's going to get a turn. One thing that grabs me is how, even though is you know, even though as intellectually fuzzy as this is, it also seems to be really the the way the Masora the tradition works. I mean, I think about, I mean, not forget about even you know, forget about the female war practice because Jews have. Don't don't say the way the Masora works. You got to be very careful when you use that definitive article. The way some parts of the tradition. There you go. I think about you know uh, what's the what's the you know I'm trying to elaborate marriage. You know that could have been forced. um, At some point, that was just narrowed into insignificance. It's yeah. not completely tossed out. 
So he's part. I mean, even though he, he, it's not very, it doesn't really lead to clear results. You could say the same thing about the rabbis in the Mishnah and the Talmud, who were doing some of the same things that he were doing in the sense of using broader values to take an axe or at least a scalpel. And you can say that about anybody else. The difference then can be a matter of the authority. Mm -hmm. Meaning we spent several classes on rabbinic authority. Mm -hmm. The question would then become, why does Rabbi Weiss have this authority to the exclusion of everyone else? Mm -hmm. I mean, the rabbis who advocate for uh, more separation between men and women are doing so based on what they think the mm-hmm. Jewish values ought to be. Like, as we mentioned, Kedoshim Tihiyu, mm-hmm. which is something that Rabbi Weiss mentioned. Hey, mm-hmm. that's a religious value. So they're following the religious value interpreted by Rashi, so men and women have to be as separate as possible. Isn't that a religious value? Mm-hmm. Right? So why does Rabbi Weiss get to make that distinction, but no one else can? Or wh- let me rephrase it another uh-huh, way. Yeah. Why is Rabbi Weiss's approach correct, but the other's incorrect, if you're both trying to intuit the true will of God? Otherwise, you're not really having faith in God. What you're having faith in, Rabbi Weiss's specific interpretation or application of what he happens to perceive uh-huh. to be the true will of God, which, again, is not unlike everyone else on the right. Uh-huh, but yeah. you just have to... That's why he said he's no better and he's no worse. Uh-huh, so uh-huh. you've got to be careful when you start throwing out like the wild accusations he's not like the conservatives, because he isn't, mm-hmm. methodologically. Dana? Um, the Rav said... The idea of the importance of man as a partner uh, of the Almighty in the act of creation. Man is creator for... You didn't say man was an equal partner. Um, you, you could argue about that with that whole Oba Shemayim he. That in some ways in the application of halacha might even take precedence. Yeah. But regardless, right, you could say that it's our job in this world to make manifest what God intended. Because God's not doing it, that's our job. So all Rabbi Weiss is doing is trying to implement in this world the you know ideal that he sees fit. And I think that's part of why he keeps going back to Tzalem Elohim, because what narrative was that from? The narrative creation. He's following that more than anything else because he's trying to recreate the world. Not just tikkun olam, mind you, although he does make references to repairing the world. Yeah. There's an act of world creation here along the lines of what Rav Soloveitchik has advocated. And part of that means shaping the world in the image that you think it ought to be. Okay, so he started the yeshiva. Right? Yeah, lots of people start yeshivas. Yeah, you know, right. <laughs> but by having developed a following... Yeah. So, so he, he's he's created the structure wherein he is, you know, their, their gadol. So the, I, it's important. The reason why I made distinctions here is, you know, the things that I mentioned, or at least my interpretation of what I read, yeah. only applies to Rabbi Weiss, yeah. or at least his halachic approach. How that, take, how that is manifest in the yeshiva itself, I don't know, because I never studied at Chovah Torah. Do, I, I wouldn't even say that all of his students would agree with what I just said either. But, you know, even according to Rabbi Weiss's own, you know, standards, there's room for disagreement. How that exactly works, I don't know, because apparently one student disagreed too much. Yeah. Don't know. So when we catch, and not necessarily the YCT rabbi, but the, any rabbi asking the equivalent of... Um, if an entire baguette is tchelas, do we have to put tzitzis on it? When we see that kind of stuff, give a specific example. Like, what do you? What would be a modern day example of that? 
one's not coming to mind at the moment. Right. So then it's hard to like throw the theoretical of like what made that because I, I don't know methodologically what you're asking. Um, the three foot mechitza. All right, but then we can argue what's the halachic obligation of mechitza. In fact, we gave a class on that. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So again, this is where it gets tricky because in terms of the halachic approach, I could agree with Rabbi Weitz that bizman hazet today. There is no problem with ordaining a woman rabbi. Right? It doesn't take too much of a leap to say that, simply because you have to prove your prohibitions. And today, what is the status of rabbi? It's a title. Can a woman have official positions teaching Torah? We already have precedents for that, not only in halachic rabbinically to be able to do that. Uh, but you need to demonstrate what prohibition are you violating. The problem is... You know, my approach at least you know gives you well. Here are clearly delineated what works and what doesn't work. When you get to selectively citing the sources that happen to agree with you, that gets a little bit different. And like this comes up a bit in the feminist stuff too, which we discuss in other classes. Like when do you follow the Tosafot over the Gemara? When do you follow Gemara over Tosafot? Right? We saw that in the early Ashkenaz class. Right? So is that really what's your basis? No, those are things that you're citing for rhetoric. Right? But what's really underlined it, and this is where you have to look past a lot of the filler in the discussions and see what is the real thing that's driving you. It's not really based on this particular halakhic authority. It's that this is where you think the world ought to go. You happen to have sources that back you up, but that's not what you're basing it on. It's not based on the natural reading of sources or texts or some objective halakhic method. It's based, or by halakhic method, I mean a legal method, it's based on finding the sources that justify the ethical, moral, social direction that you want the Jewish community, or not you want the Jewish community, that you think is demanded upon the Jewish community in your specific time and place. But he often seems to be starting with the conclusion and working backwards to, as opposed to asking the question... Should we be ordaining women? Uh, that could be a matter of rhetoric, too. I mean, this is a question I actually, you know, dealt with in... I did a program many years ago called Me'orot. This was the year before Chovevei Torah started. And was having a discussion with Rabbi Berman about this. Um, and we were talking about having intuition before you work through a halacha. Now, he said, most people who do research in a field are going to have a hypothesis of, like, here's what I think the halacha is going to turn out. The honest person, when he goes to the source, to say, wow, I was wrong, or hey, I didn't think of that. And you constantly evolve from your hypothesis. Where you lose integrity is when you use the sources to justify what you think the halacha already is. That's not something unique to Rabbi Weiss. Again, it's very important to point out, even if you say that he does that, is he different than anyone else? I, uh, to a couple of examples uh, that came out, we were discussing, uh, one of the rabbis pointed out that Rabbi Soloveitchik, in his shears, um, I think it was Rabbi Berman who was leading this, who said things like Rabbi, Ber- uh, Rabbi Soloveitchik said, it has to be the law that you desecrate Shabbat to save the life of a non-Jew against explicit Gemara, right? That was what he said because it offended his moral sensibility in some way or another. Uh, he also quoted Rabbi Moshe Feinstein uh, permitting smoking, how it seemed that he was trying to find a way to moderate, like starting off with his conclusion and working through it. I forget which one of those, but for one of those two examples, Rabbi Berman said, well, yeah, this seems to be an example where he started with a conclusion and tried to you know, work from there. I said, well, based on your own definition, 
you have enough of a paper trail, at what point do you say this particular decisor lacks integrity? Right? And let's also not keep in mind, there are some halachic issues where we do try to start with a conclusion. Mattering a mamzer, making someone not a mamzer, we do our darndest to make sure this person isn't a mamzer. That's starting with your conclusion, right? And you're trying to be lenient in that particular case. So it's not an all-out indictment, right? The question is, you know, to, if do, how to put this, does your intuition or does your passion behind your in, intuition start muddling with the way that you approach texts? And that's something that if, even if you want to say Rabbi Weiss has done in that he's used his intuition to sort of cut halachic corners or cut methodological halachic corners, is that something that other people have done as well? And if you want to say that Rabbi Weiss has done it, you can say that with other people too. And that you think this is what the law ought to be, and you will work through it no matter what. And that can go lechumra as well as lakula. It can go for leniencies as well as stringencies. Yeah. Um, a while back you asked on your Facebook page um, whether uh, you asked, I think, I think you asked about using a Metro card on Yantu. Yeah. And it, it incited it. Yeah, sure. Okay, so... I normally, when I, like, re-quote questions, I don't like quoting people because I don't know, like, if ever any, anyone wants credit, but it's a great question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it incited a great deal of controversy. It did. And maybe you weren't starting from the conclusion of what the answer is, but there were certain people who spoke up and who were clearly saying... Start, starting from, yes, it has to, because this is 2012. Yeah. And like, and others who start with inclusion, it must be prohibited. And the, and, and But let's also not forget, very few people who post on Facebook are posting. Especially people who post on my statuses. <laughs> that, that much I can promise you. The post Kim. That's a good one. Post Kim. I like that. That's another one I'm going to... You are on a roll today. Okay. So, 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 so the thing is <laughs> that... The, the one of the post Kim um, uh, quoted a source from a rabbi in Egypt in the twenties. Yeah, who said electricity isn't what you think it is. Yeah, and we're about to have a physicist who, again, I don't know, I don't, I don't know this physicist. That's I, why you should come to the Shear. Well, yeah, this Wednesday, Dr. Alan Mincer. And I don't know if he's coming in with a foregone conclusion. He's coming in to speak as a physicist. He's not coming to talk on halacha at all. He's come just to speak on electricity. That's it. And the reason why I'm bringing him in is because when the password I gave it, I had to rely on Wikipedia. But the assumption is before you start talking about the levels of electricity, you have to know what electricity is. So is now, it- there are people who seem to approach the question of, it, we have to find a way to prohibit electricity, and we're just going to come up with stuff. And when we go through the sources there, you're gonna, that's actually a great example. You are going to find examples where people wanted to prohibit it, and instead of really knowing what was going on with electricity, said, oh, it must be prohibited for this reason or another reason. So there's a good example of starting with your conclusion too, Lachumra. Well, then you know what? If it's mutter, why don't we do it? That's a separate question. Meaning, even if you want to say something is permissible, there's no obligation to use electricity. So by not doing it, it's not like you're violating anything. 
Right? Let's say I hold that electricity is 100% mutar on Shabbat. Yeah. Do I violate anything by not turning on lights? No! But you're... So to give that argument is fallacious from a perspective... It's um, a specious reasoning from the point of halacha. But aren't you enforcing or, or, or strengthening what Minhag Yisrael is? Me, personally? One... Doubtful. One who, specifically, one who specifically said, even though it's technically mutter, I'm not going to... There's do nothing it. wrong with not doing it. There was... There's, again, that's, the problem isn't in not doing it. The problem would be saying you're violating a prohibition without giving a really good reason for it. And we're going to discuss that in greater detail over the next couple of weeks in our Wednesday class. One, so let's move on along there. There was one rabbi that said technically it's... Uh... You're not really violating. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna discuss that on the one in the Wednesday is, class. Okay. Something about again. Right. We'll, we'll get there. Yes. Do you have any questions on this specific topic, Shalamis? Or uh, we'll no, move on. I did have a question. What, what is the definition of conservatox? Uh, so to, that, that's a separate issue in terms of labels or what people come up with. Right. I don't know. I don't use it. I don't care. Uh, <laughs> what I would suggest is for all these things, when someone uses the term conservatox, ask them how do you personally define conservatox. Right. That's it. I I won't even go there. George, I'm sure you got a bunch. Uh, no, it's a little down. Um, the end of uh, paragraph six, um, where it says that. Yeah, for those following along, paradox six was part of the citation from the Open Orthodoxy article. Right, and what he's doing is quoting Reverend Salavetic and says that he understood. That's a psychological in, uh, insight that. What, how does he justify it? Yeah, but you can argue the same thing about Rav Soloveitchik. Meaning when Rav Soloveitchik writes this about the halachic man, where the heck is Rav Soloveitchik getting this from? Right? So you can say that making psychological assumptions without support or basis is also part of the tradition of Rav Soloveitchik. <laughs> oh, come on. Uh, the other thing is... Uh, Prove this thing about telos. You go ahead. He, All right, you work on that. Well, George, or look up the footnote. We'll continue with George's questions. When he's done with his questions, we'll get back to you. Yeah, it's just a comment that if I were wise, Rabbi Weiss, Rabbi Weiss, uh, I would cite uh, the incident that occurs in the Torah in which um, the laws of inheritance are very old, very ancient, very well-defined. However, there's a woman in um, that approaches Moshe and say that... Benos Tzlachad. Yeah, okay. And Mo, uh, Moshe says, no, you will have uh, your entire inheritance. So he, he doesn't, so he doesn't have to give the specific sources. He gives enough when he says, ask the judges in your day. Keep Like that kind okay. of word. Also, yeah, don't forget... That's a very strong argument as far as I'm concerned. Okay, yeah. that that doesn't yeah, really that, not, that doesn't really it, it, he he already quoted something that justifies your putting authority with ask the people in your day. So okay. to say he could have given something else to pickle, whatever. Okay. Anything else you got? Okay, back so, to you, Zena, and then back to Mike. Why? How can we possibly put Rosalovich at the same level? I'm sorry, yeah. how can we possibly put Avi Weiss at the same level? as an established Gadol Hadar, like Rabbi Soloveitch. And are you in the position to give either one a Bechina? <laughs> of course not. All right. <laughs> so that being the case, once you're focusing on greatness, then you get to the question of who gives you the right to do this. But if you're going to ask who gives... A lot of people are much smarter than me. But then that gets into the questions of Gadolatry. 
right? Whoever gave, if you want to say, well, who gave Rabbi Weiss the right to have his opinion? Who gave Rosal of the right to have his opinion? And if you're going to base it on, well, other people happen to follow him, well, people follow Rabbi Weiss. There you go. And then it's, all right? You had a final so, Yeah, I was thinking, just to play off that, I mean, obviously, at first glance, it sounds like Avi Weiss can't reach Avi Weiss's conclusions without declaring Avi Weiss a goddol. Which, yeah. doesn't, which is, for me is very problematic because who should anybody who declares himself a god all can't be intuitively but uh, maybe another way of saying it that makes everybody right is to say by making your arguments you allow you know you allow you create a situation that allows the you know the god all even if you're not a god all that allows the god all even of the next generation to make the, to make the call yes unless you know, you of, unless call of course you're re- unless of course you're Rabbi Kleinberg who doesn't have the right, right to make his decision. Which surpri- actually is surprisingly lenient. You know, I was reading, a, this was years ago, I remember reading a book about like 19th century German Orsay, and people were running, people were pulling each other's smikas, saying, we repute, we deny that we ever gave this person's smikas even ballots. So yeah, that, that people, people have been actually complaining about that, and in the, in the, I was talking to Dan about this in the RCA world, where a bunch of people I know want to pull Rabbi Greenberg, uh, Steve Greenberg's smikas, uh-huh. yeah, yeah. because he's gay. And when people do that, I say, well, why don't you pull, while you're at it, pull the smicha of anyone who molested a kid. Well, wait a minute. Which, you know, because once you start saying this is what causes you to lose smicha, uh-huh. the truth is, in today's smicha is not really revoked at all. At any rate, late as it is, you know, want to thank you all for coming. This again, you know, I quoted Rabbi Weiss, and my argument, or at least my interpretation of Rabbi Weiss, was based on how I interpreted his own words. Mm-hmm. If anyone has... Another way of explaining Rabbi Weiss's open orthodoxy as a halachic method, as a way of resolving all of the contradictions, Mm -hmm. and as a way of providing some method of addressing his selective citations, which he does, and we demonstrated that he does. And if you read the whole thing on women rabbis, you see that he does, or you see how he even is internally inconsistent regarding method, if you view it from a purely logical, rule-based approach, referring to the intuitive ethics and being able to understand the teleology, the end result of what he thinks God's creation ought to be, from the tradition of Ralph Soloveitchik, whom he quotes at length, if someone can provide a different explanation that answers all of these questions, I would be more than happy to hear it. But until then, my best answer is open orthodoxy, and not just again, I have to stress this too, it's not just Rabbi Avi Weiss. This applies to any person who gets up and says, Jewish values demand. A lot of rabbis do this. Any uh, reference to Jewish values is, when you follow it through logically, the Das Torah that's more commonly used on the left. That you know what God really wants. Mm -hmm. That you know that this is what God thinks is more important than anything else. Mm -hmm. And that is, well, let's call it a presumptuous Mm -hmm. statement. No less presumptuous than rabbis on the right who do that, but presumptuous nonetheless. And it's something that I think I've demonstrated Rabbi Weiss does, how he got it from Rav Soloveitchik. But it's also important and something that anyone here listening needs to really keep in mind whenever someone makes the appeal to religious values of any sort. They're really doing it based on their Das Torah, the way they think Jewish law or Jewish whatever ought to be. Even if they cite sources, mm-hmm. it's a smokescreen. Because you cite a source one way, I'll cite a source another way. I might even cite the same person to tell something that you happen to disagree with. So you're not really basing it on the source. You're basing it on your own t- intuition. You're basing it on what you happen to think that the will of God truly is. Is that presumptuous? 
in my opinion, yes, but no less than anyone who relies on or refers to someone else who relies on Das Torah, someone having this intuitive knowledge of Torah that we explained in the previous lecture. That have a wonderful week.